Hi everybody. Hi there. We had a small tech problem. The little mouse was not behaving itself. That's right. Mice don't like, they don't always behave themselves. They don't. My, my, my mises, mice, mouse was not, well, was not behaving. So Patty, I know you've been under the weather today. How are you feeling right now? I'm doing better. I woke up this morning and just had a stomach bug. Oh, those are a lot of fun. It's not fun. Had to kind of change up of my day, but I'm hoping as, you know, when you're little, I can remember when something like this would happen, my mom would say, it's a 24-hour virus. That's right. So you know what I'm hoping? It's 24 hours. I'm hoping it's not a virus, <laughs> a contagious thing, oh, but I'm I, really hoping you get yeah. to feeling better. Soon. Thank you. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We went out to dinner last <clears throat> night with um, some wonderful friends and had some Mexican food, and I'm almost wondering if it was something. Maybe it was something you ate, but we had the, we ate the same plate. We did, you, you but not I. really the same plate. Not really the same plate. Right. No, no. Right. So. My enchiladas were my enchiladas. That's your enchiladas right. were your enchiladas. That's right. So anyway. Don't know what it was. Glad it doesn't happen very often. But here we and are. And we're glad everybody's here today. We're going to resume our journey through Mark. Um, we are going to, whoo, I don't know if we'll wrap up Tuesday or not. Tuesday being the day of the week right. that we're on in Holy, Holy week. week. I don't know if we actually will. It's Tuesday is so jam-packed. But in any event, um, we will we will press on. I think it's going to be a real interesting day, help helpful day, maybe for with passages that, that really really flummox people. That's and, good. And we'll try to we'll try to sort through them, and I'll try to be helpful for everybody. So let's see. Well, I guess that's about it. We'll be here every Monday for a while, I think um, so. except Labor Day. We won't have class right. on Labor Day. Right. Not that um, we're going anywhere, because no. Scott actually preaches, really preaches that weekend. Uh, uh, Plus, no, that's not true. I'm just oh. liturgist. Oh, I thought you were preaching. No, I'm just Darn, liturgist. As far sorry. as I know, I'm just liturgist, okay. but I'm always ready. That's right. So, <laughs> okay. One thing but with if, Scott, it really is true. I, I know this. If somebody called him with 30 minutes to spare, he could come up with something. That's because I write that background study yes, every, week every week on the topic. So right. I've always got stuff to work with. Right, right. And I've been teaching a long time. Right. Good thing it hasn't happened very often over no, the years. So. No. But you're right. So anyway, let's go ahead and uh, shall I get us started? Please. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we say every week, we are grateful. We are grateful to you for the opportunity to come together like this. We're grateful for the gift of Scripture. We're grateful for friends and fellowship. Um, we love doing this together, even if it's online and virtual. We love doing it together. And um, we just pray that your Holy Spirit, um, as you spoke to David, as we're going to see in, in the passage today, um, may you fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm and use these words of Scripture to speak to us and help us to see the truth of the good news. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okay. I am going to... Miss Patty's going to go back to the other side. Go over here. Now, here's where we are. We are at chapter 12, 35, 35? Yes, 35. Got to get the right glasses. And we have been all last week and part of the previous week, I think, on Tuesday of Holy Week, because in Mark's Gospel, it is just jam-packed, okay? Now, I think 
every person who writes, writes for a reason. They have a purpose. They have things they want to convey. And that's a really good place to try to begin approaching the writing. Um, and, and Mark is, has this proclamation of the good news that he has written and he's, got, he's telling this story that he wants us to hear, right? He's presenting Jesus to us and Jesus' public ministry to, 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 to talk to us about the good news and the truth of the good news and, and the truth about Jesus. So let me just, we're going <clears> to... <throat> Here's what we should do. Well, I'm just going to start on 12:35. Okay, then I'm going to go back and do a little, a little bit. I'm going to go back and, and and do a little piece about what happens um, at the end of the day. But in 12:35 begins this little section where Jesus is still in the temple courts. I think I brought today. Even remember, I had this little uh, painting by James Tussaud of Jesus in the temple courts. I like that. That's good and straightforward. Right, and here is the model in Jerusalem right now at the Israel Museum of uh, Jerusalem and Jesus' day, utterly dominated by the temple and the temple court. All right, so Jesus is in the temple courts and he has been challenged and confronted, and people are asking him questions. The last question he was asked, the previous section here, was about the greatest commandment. But now Jesus is going to ask the question and he's going to answer it, which is kind of cool, I guess. So verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, hmm, why do the teachers of the law, these would be the scribes, the Pharisees, the learned, right, um, the elite in Jerusalem, say that the Messiah is the son of David? because that is the Jewish expectation based upon scripture that the Messiah would come from the household of David, the line of David. And Jesus is claimed to be from the line of David in the eyes of everybody is the fact that Joseph is his father. Even you and I know that Joseph is essentially his adoptive father, but that counts. Julius Caesar's son, his nephew, was adopted. Back up. Julius Caesar adopted his nephew, Octavius, and he became Caesar Augustus. So, like in our world, when, when you're adopted, you, you take on, you're, you're fully that person's, in my case, son, because I was adopted by my stepfather. So my, my, my birth certificate says nothing about my actual 1950 birth name, Hubley. It only reflects Engel, E-N-G-L-E, with my father being Francis Engel, even though he was my stepfather. That's just the way adoption works, and it's a great and good thing. And so the, the, the Messiah is to come from the house of David. And <clears throat> Jesus poses the question, well, why is this? And then he poses the problem. David himself, Jesus says, speaking by the Holy Spirit, right? Speaking by God. David, speaking by God, by the Holy Spirit, declared. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. 
which was seen and understood as a messianic psalm, okay, pointing to this Messiah figure who would, whom God would raise up and who would um, cast out the oppressors and cleanse the temple. So we lose a little bit of this in the English, maybe even in the Greek, because in the English, well, you can see it in the NIV. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But in Psalm 110, it's clear that the first Lord there, at the beginning of the first line, is actually Yahweh's name. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now David himself, Jesus says, calls him Lord, the him being this figure right at the end of the first line of the quote from Psalm 110. How can he be his son? How can one person be both David's son, David from the household of David, and be David's Lord? Well, Jesus doesn't even answer the question. The large crowd just is delighted with the whole thing. He asked the question. He doesn't answer the question. He's been challenged all day long, and he's been flummoxing and uh, all the challenges, all the challengers. But I don't think this is that hard. How could the Messiah both come from David's household and be David's Lord? Well, who, ah, who is, speaking of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is her Lord? Who is Mary's Lord? Jesus. Jesus. Who is David's Lord? Jesus. Who is my Lord? Jesus. The fact that the Messiah will come from David's line, his his line of you know descendants and all that stuff doesn't doesn't mean that when the Messiah comes he's not David's Lord everybody's Lord but it's still the way Jesus poses the question and then he uses Psalm 110 and he leaves the crowd kind of all delighted I this is this Remember, there are two unfolding themes that Mark has that go across his gospel. One is the continuing revelation of who Jesus is. And then there is the continuing, ever-building opposition to Jesus. And we've seen that all day on Tuesday. And so here's another little bit about who Jesus is right and i just love how this line ah the lord the large crowd they just loved it they were eating it up they listened to him with delight <clears throat> so then he speaks to them directly uh, and again in a way that endears himself to the teachers of the law the pharisees and the rest as he taught jesus said watch out for the teachers of the law they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues 
and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows, houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely because they're the ones who know better. It's hard for them to plead ignorance, the teachers of the law, about the lives they should lead. I think that's part of what drives Nicodemus to find Jesus in John chapter 3. And he, he, he himself knows the hypocrisy of the Pharisees when it's put there, and the scribes and the elites and the priests when you put it in the context of God's law and God's teachings. Now, this little section, just as an aside, Matthew takes it, and he makes it part of the Sermon on the Mount when it's about prayer. In, in chapter 6 of Matthew, when it's kind of like I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is like a triangle, and you, you begin, and at the middle of it, you find Jesus' teachings about prayer. And so, but of course Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy. Mark has it here, and what does it do? What does it do in the narrative, in the story that Mark is telling? Well, it just takes attention to another level, right? Now he's calling them hypocrites and worse right to their faces and saying that these men will be punished most severely. Who's, who, who do you think Jesus has in mind as being the one who's going to punish them? God. God will not be mocked. Right? God. So, this is, a, he's had the, remember earlier, in, um, the day before, on, on Monday, what did he do? He turned over the temple tables, the, the money changers tables, brought the whole temple sacrificial system to a halt for a while, and cursed the fig tree. I mean, it's just like I said last week, it's like that alarm clock being wound tighter and tighter each day. So, this, what had to be a long day in the temple courts is going to draw to a close. Verse 41. <clears throat> no, no, I'm ahead of myself. One more thing, one more story. There's just so much that happens on Tuesday. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Verse 41. So now Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watch the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. So picture two big jars of some kind, and they're at the gates um, of the temple proper. Let me go to my little model here. You can see, uh, I, can't, I can't do a pointer, but, but they're right, on, they're kind of facing the camera, right at the bottom of the temple proper are gates where these probably stood, <coughs> sat, <clears throat> and everybody's coming by and they're putting their temple offerings and money in and it says many rich people threw in large amounts of money. But a poor widow came and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Traditionally, these, these coins were in English were called mites, M-I-T-E-S, because they're just so small and tiny, nearly worthless, it's like 
kind of like, what do you do when somebody hands you some pennies today? What are you really supposed to do with a couple of pennies? Save in them your in closet. a baggie, and then you take zip them. <laughs> that, that's what you do, Patty, right? Save them in a baggie till you have enough, and then. Yeah, take them one of those machines. You can yes. pour them in, and they count them or something. Yes. You know, but something like that. I yeah. think pennies are going to go away before too long. But this poor, notice poor widow. The adjective's important. A poor widow came. The fact that she's a widow is important. Widows were the most marginalized people in the ancient world generally. That's why there's so many admonitions in the Old Testament about taking care of whom? They, the Israelites were to be the ones who took care of the widows and the orphans. But a poor widow came and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more money into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything. All she had to live on. See, the rich people, they can put big sums in the jar, but it doesn't make any difference to them or their lifestyle or their 401ks or anything like that. But her, the poor widow, she gave to the temple, to God, all she had. And and it's always, you know, th this section is always overused at the times in the year when churches bring up stewardship and have the stewardship pledges and so forth. And so it, we, we hear it often enough that it becomes, bah, here's that story again about the widow's mite. But you just have to kind of step back and think about it. And, and Jesus has his disciples around him and he's looking over there, he's probably pointing and he's talking about all those rich people coming on and writing their big checks and putting them in, and then there's this poor widow, um, probably very old. I see a few paintings of her on the internet that artists have made, and some of them make her kind of young and, you know, foxy. Nah. No, that's not who she was. She was old, poor, widowed. It never says there she was old. It, it doesn't, but it's because widow. she's poor and she's a widow that she's never been married. She had, her, no, well, she has been married. She, but but she's not married now. Yes. Nobody has taken her to be his wife. Right. Yes. So I, I just uh, anyway, I, I just think that she's probably old. But you're right; it doesn't anything about her age. I'm just inferring that, and I could be wrong. You know. I think okay. That says every picture I've ever seen. It is a very old lady, almost like with her little hand out with the one little. Yeah, but you should look at the internet because there are the other Google. Well, I go. To, I use Google Images, so there are other ones where she's, you know, younger and like I said, kind of, kind of foxy. I don't know. Anyway, okay. The widow's might. The widow's offering. A moving little little story. And you have anything to add to that, Patty? No, no, I don't. Thank and you. after that, 
begins chapter 13. And now they are finally going to leave the temple courtyards after what had to have been a very long day. Remember, it is Passover week, right? And the city is packed to the rafters. They are probably staying with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus out in Bethany on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So they have to leave Jerusalem, make their way up to the Mount of Olives and come down on the, on the eastern side in order to um, go home for the night, prepared to come back the next day, presumably. So chapter 13, so Jesus and some of his disciples are with him. As, <clears throat> as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher! What massive stones! What magnificent buildings! Right? Because the disciples, they're all country guys. They're from up in Galilee. They're fishermen. They take out the little fishing boat and they go fishing for fish. And the biggest places they encounter most of the time are places like Capernaum. Maybe they go into Sepphoris sometimes. But nothing like Herod's temple that the temple that Herod built the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem let me go back to my photo again that temple is tw was twice the height of the dome of the rock that's in Jerusalem today wow wow dominating the landscape the temple courtyards fit 22 football fields in them they're enormous I have another photo. Okay, let me just go to the next one over here. Boom! When you go to Jerusalem and you're on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, which isn't very high, there are some lookouts where you can look down onto the Temple Mount. You're, you're looking across the Kidron Valley onto the Temple Mount. And I put two red arrows on there in order to show you where the two ends of it are. And you can see the gold dome rising up in roughly the middle of this. Now, <clears throat> Jesus and a few of his disciples are going to, to pause on their return. They're going to sit down on the slope of Mount Olive, but it wouldn't have been here. It would have been further north on this slope of the Mount of Olives. Um, because that would be the more direct route to, to go from the gate on the eastern wall to, to Bethany. But just it's just so huge. I, I never really, I mean, I could see it. I could describe it. I had seen the Temple Mount several times. But until I went up there for the first time, I didn't really have a deep, visceral sense of how large it was. And when you, when you stood on one end, and you basically looked across all the way to the other end. It is so huge. You can see how it is that the Romans rode horses up and into the temple courtyards to try to keep the peace, which seems like a crazy way to do it. But yeah, because it's just so big. Wow. Wow. So of course, I mean, the disciples, they're just agog. Man, man. You know, they might have, I'm sure they were there before. But they're just still just like, wow. You know, kind of like if you go to New York City or something, and even if you've been there a few times, 
several times, many times, it's still like, wow, look at this. So they said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says to them, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's all going to be crash, come crashing down. Now, what is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about the destruction of the temple that's coming, right? Yes. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now that's inconceivable to the disciples. Look at this thing. It's the biggest structure they've ever seen. You know, interestingly, in Jesus' day, it still wasn't finished. Herod had started decades before, and it won't be finished until about the time it is destroyed by the Romans. So, they ask the question. Jesus asked the question. Do you see all these great buildings? It's all coming down, buddies. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, up on that slope, right? looking down on the Temple Mount from the slope, James, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. That's so interesting to me, because see, Peter, James, and John are sort of the inner circle of three, like at the Transfiguration, but now Andrew. Okay, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Asked him privately. So this was not, not, not for public consumption. Asked him privately, tell us. When will these things happen? So what do you think you, they mean by these things? The destruction of the temple. Do you got it? I mean, this is not, this, yeah, I mean, it has to be. Just put it in the narrative and read it. When will these things happen? When is it going to be pulled down stone upon stone? Go back two, three verses before, two verses before. And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? How will we know? Well, how, you, Come on, man. You've got to give us some idea about when this is going to happen because this is going to be cataclysmic, apocalyptic. We can't even conceive of such a thing. You're telling it's coming. What can you tell us about when this will happen? How will we know it's about to happen? Now, that is the introduction to chapter 13. And I want to, there's one more piece of prefacing here just to help us really hone in on this. Go all the way down to the last verse. Well, not quite the last verse. Go to verse 30. 13.30. 13.30. This is Jesus again, because this whole first th chapter 13 is almost all Jesus talking to them. He says, and here, at, so this is like a bookend. The first bookend is them going all agog over the temple. Jesus said, this is all coming down stone upon stone. And they ask him, well, when is this going to happen? And then the other bookend is verse 30. When he says, truly, Truly I tell you, 
This is the truth, truly true. Verily, verily, I say unto you in the old King James, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So what is the plain reading of that? Some of you will still be alive. Yeah. Some of you are still going to be here. You're Some of you are going to still it. be here. Yep. There's going to be people alive right now who are going to be alive when this happens. Well, you figure if a lot of people think that little John is only about maybe 17, 18 years old, we're talking less than 40 years later yeah. that this would happen. So he, yeah. good chance, right? That, exactly. That would Patty. be alive. Yeah. Now... Not some of the old in, guys, though. In the history of biblical ter ter interpretation, this chapter 13 has often been read as speaking solely of Jesus' second coming. But that really rips it out of context. And if you make it, if you insist upon making his second coming the primary the primary, the primary theme of chapter 13, then you have to ask yourself, well, what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 30, truly I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, one conclusion might be, well, you know, Jesus was just wrong. And there are some folks who are perfectly comfortable with that. They're just, they're just comfortable with that. I am not one of those who would be comfortable with that. And for those who aren't comfortable with that, they end up twisting themselves into pretzels over this word generation. Well, it doesn't really mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean what it obviously means. It means something else because they're trying to explain away the problem. Unless, you see, chapter 13 is not primarily about Jesus' second coming but about the destruction of the temple. So go back to chapter 13. Right at verses 1. Look, teacher. Ah, it's so magnificent. Jesus says, ah, it's all going to come down stone upon stone. They sit down on Mount of Olives, and Peter, James, John, and Andrew says, well, when is this going to happen? And you get to the end of it, and Jesus you know, truly I tell you, the... This generation will see it. This generation will see it. So let me give you just a little bit of the history that follows Jesus in this, okay? So I actually made up a slide about this. Wow. Okay. So here we go. In AD 30, in the year of our Lord, AD, in the year of our Lord, 30, Jesus was crucified and resurrected, roughly. Uh, yeah, people will argue about that a little bit here or there, but that's pretty much, that. those are the dates I use, AD 30. In AD 66, revolt breaks out in Judea and Galilee. Well, I didn't spell Galilee right, but didn't type it right, but never mind, we can go. So... In the intervening, what, 36 years, it was a continuously building tension. More and more tension, more and more um, expectation that this 
that this tempest was going to blow up. And in A.D. 66, it does blow up. And the revolt begins, a revolt against Roman rule, a revolt against Roman taxes. It's going to be encompassing Judea and Galilee. It's not, it's not localized like the one in Sepphoris was in, when Jesus was about 10. In A.D. 70, Jerusalem is taken and the temple is destroyed because in 68, the Romans committed one quarter of all of their legions to the winning of this war, the Jewish wars. So they committed vast amounts of Roman soldiers and wealth to defeating the Jews, putting down the revolt. And in AD 70, they, they took the city, they burned the city, and they destroyed the temple. And it would be a few years until all the fighting ended because the last holdout was the stronghold called Masada. And that fell in about 74. Okay, so if we go from A.D. 30, when Jesus crucified and resurrected, so that's when Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples on the slopes of Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, until the temple is destroyed is how long? 40 years. And as Patty pointed out, would people alive in 30 AD be alive in 70? Sure. Sure. Of course. I mean, sure, their life expectancy wasn't what ours is now, but the interesting thing is that there were still old people. Old people who lived into their 80s and 90s. Right? Not a lot. But 40, sure. And um, that is what chapter 13 is about. Jesus turned the tables over in the temple, invoking the words and the actions of Jeremiah. Remember when we looked at that, we saw that what he said, this house, you've made my, house, my father's house into a den of thieves. It's virtually exactly what Jeremiah said about 30 or 40 years before the Babylonians destroyed the temple that Solomon built. And so now this is going to be 40 years after Holy Week that Jerusalem is taken and the temple is destroyed and Jesus is going to be what? What's a good word? He is going to be vindicated. He is going to be shown to have been right. It, it's unthinkable in 30 AD. Look at this massive structure. It's unthinkable that it could be destroyed. But it was. And Jesus was vindicated. Shown to be in the right. Because he has been telling the people. Ever since he started his public ministry. That you are. If you follow the scribes. And the Pharisees. And the priests. They are taking you on the wrong road and you are going to be destroyed. The road they have you on, their understanding or their, at least they're telling you of what God's way is, is not God's way. You can't, you can't contemplate taking up the sword against Rome. 
you will be destroyed. And he was right. God's will, blessed are the peacemakers. God's way is the way of peace. So anyway, there we go. Now, I've also brought a picture for you. These are stones. So so this is at the that up the the wall there is the foundation of the Temple Mount. This is on the western side on the southern corner. So this is the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount. Um, all right. And these stones fallen fallen on the broken pavement there that you see underneath them. These stones are stones that were levered off by the Romans in 70 AD to the pavement below. Isn't that astounding? Nancy Pratt asked if the story of Masada is in the Bible. No, it is not. The best place to go to that story is in, is in the telling of it by Josephus, a Jewish historian. Very moving account. Incredibly moving. And very moving. Because we, we, Patty and I, have been to, to Masada and and had it read before us as we were up there, at least at certain portions of it. Very moving. But no, 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 the Bible... No, it's not. So, just look at those. You're you're looking at that's that's like a moment in time captured. We are two thousand years later, and you're looking at these stones levered off the Temple Mount by the Romans two thousand years ago, lying there just as they. It's just as if they fell. Yes, were levered off yesterday. Isn't that astounding? It is to me. It's it just is. like, I've, I've seen them, Patty's seen them. If you've been with us to Israel, um, you've, you've, I think you've seen them. And it's just, it's very moving when you really realize what lay behind it. And of course, what lay behind it was this Jewish war that was terrible. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed. Their bodies thrown into big burning heaps of trash on the southern side of the city. I mean, it was awful. Awful. Awful on a scale that you and I probably can't imagine. The Romans would go to brutal lengths to put down revolt. Why did they go to brutal lengths putting down revolts? To say to the other parts of the empire who might be thinking about <laughs> revolting, don't do it. I mean, that's the idea behind crucifixion. Crucifixion is public, it's humiliating, it's terrible, it's awful. And it says to everybody, don't do this. That's why they put the sign above Jesus, says, king of the Jews. Don't, so the Romans saying, don't imagine that you're going to lead a revolt against Caesar. Scott, or, yeah. um, Jim has put, Jesus probably walked on that path, and I know when we've been there, you have said that that is like the Southern Steps area is one of the areas where you can be positive, right? Yes. That you know, he, actually... he might have used that sidewalk. Whoop, back up, Scotty boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, okay, back, 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 back to the model. Yes. So if you look at the northern corner, it's really the western corner, the southern side, because this, this I'm look the camera's looking west, right now the Mediterranean's in the distance. 
So if you walk around that corner, okay, if you walk just around, do you see that little guy walking down there um, in this photo? You don't see, yeah. Okay, you turn left, you go down a little ways, you come to the southern steps. Yeah. And we've all, if you've been to Israel the last few trips, you've sat on those southern steps. Yep. We all had our photos taken there. Yep, That's and that is, those are steps Jesus would have climbed. And he might well have walked on this pavement along here. Might, very well might have walked along this pavement and I imagine as he did he felt deep sadness over what was what was coming what was coming for them yeah so Josie Teeter wrote put on here about the dove keepers that's a recent novelization of, of the story of Masada so you could read like the dove keepers and you could read Josephus you can um, there are modern translations of Josephus that aren't hard to read and you could you could read them both. And Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote about Masada. So, in addition to many other things, he also gave us a life of Herod, the Great. But anyway, thank you, Josephus, the Dove Keepers. So, the book ends because it's it's common among Christians to think that. Chapter 13 is only about Jesus' second coming, and they get to the end, and they're kind of stuck on the horns of a dilemma regarding the generation thing, and they're not really reading it in the context of all the tension building and the question, well, when is this going to happen? And it's obvious, obviously they're talking about the destruction of the temple. So the primary focus of chapter 13 is the destruction of the temple, the war that's coming, because the people are choosing the way of the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and not Jesus. So much so that come Friday, what will happen to Jesus? He'll be crucified. He'll be crucified. Okay? So let me... Um, the, this business of prophets and timing of things is difficult. <clears throat> For the prophets, now I'm not, uh, Jesus is a prophet, he's an apocalyptic prophet. For the prophets, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so forth, when they would look a straight on at what's coming, they would see both the now and the later, and the much later, and it would get all kind of mixed together, and you couldn't really be sure exactly which is which. It's kind of looking like uh, different mountain ridges in the distance on a clear day, when it's hard to tell the close ones from the far ones. But if you get a side view, like I have on this slide, now, later, much later, you can see that actually God is sending through the prophet pictures of what's happening, what will happen fairly soon, and the larger picture of the fulfillment of God's promises that lies ahead. So it is in chapter 13. You can certainly see in this pieces that, that 
will speak to Jesus's second coming because that second coming is the culmination of God's work, right? I mean, Jesus's arrival is the culmination already, but not yet. <laughs> that that old thing, that 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 which we've done many times. But the primary focus, the primary focus of Mark 13 is the destruction of the temple and the war that goes with it. It's not just that the temple's destroyed. It's, that, it's the war. And, and gosh, we people of the 21st century, if we haven't lived through war, we should certainly have an appreciation of the horrors of war. In the last hundred years. So let's go on. Now that I've done all of that long setup. So Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he. Uh, Savior, Messiah, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Now this, for me, go. let me go on. Night, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so wars, earthquakes... Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine. Have we ever lived in a period of time as humans when these things were not prevalent? No. Sadly, even famine is still prevalent. Yeah. We should have conquered famine already, but we don't, huh? So, so these aren't new things. You know, you can't say, well, I'm going to sit around and wait for a time when wars start to happen. They're always happening. Look what's happening right now. You just have to, if before it was Ukraine, it was not the American Georgia, but the, the Russian Georgia. They're Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria. Wow, a lot of, tr lot of trouble there. But why does Jesus call these birth pains. What birth are we talking about? Oof. Simplest answer, probably the best answer, my general approach, is that he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 65. And that will, will the closing vision in John's revelation, Revelation 21, this new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus will, when this new world will be will be will be born the earth will be transformed and renewed out with the old in with the new so in verse 9 Jesus says you must be on your guard and now he issues a word of warning which even for Mark's readers would be seen and heard as a word of caution for the Christian believers who were being persecuted from time to time and place to place. You must be on your guard 
you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Ugh. Who was handed over to the local council and flogged in the synagogue? Jesus. What was his name? Jesus himself. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Patty. On account of me, I, you I will... I have to answer on behalf of everyone else. I know, darling. I know they're thinking it. <laughs> I know. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Hmm. You know, that... That's, that's Paul at the end of the book of Acts. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. This is all about sending out the messengers. It's about the making of disciples, about the word and the gospel being carried out to the ends of the earth. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. God is going to be with you. God is going to, God is going to give you what to say. God is going to reassure you. Because you're God's, there's only so much they can do to you, right? That's right. But such a tough time. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You know, verse 12 about brother and brother and father and child, Christians were seen as betrayers of family values. Not upholders of family values, betrayer of family values, because they said to come to Jesus and if your family shuns you because of it, so be it. You must choose Jesus over your family in that case. So from the pagans' perspective, the Christians were, the last thing they were, were upholders of families and family values. Jesus said earlier in the gospel, you know, who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? It's the disciples. It's, it's the body of Christ. Not even his own blood. It's a deep and, and important point to make. Jesus wants and expects our loyalty to be to him first. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, you know, for, may we all be blessed to have families that love us <laughs> even if we love Jesus, right? But there, for some people, even in today, today's world, sure, look again. Gosh, Nigeria. Wow, what they're going through. Christians, Muslims, so much fighting, so much... It's terrible. And you know, Nigeria is one of the most populous countries on the planet. The day's coming when it's going to surpass the U.S. in population. It's huge enormous in population. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What this sound, what this little part sounds like to me is when you read part of Jesus' final discourse to his disciples in the Gospel of John. That long section, John 15, 16, 17, where he's telling them about trying to help them see what's coming. He wants to prepare them. Now, Mark is writing this. Most scholars would date this gospel before the destruction in Jerusalem. 
Matthew and Luke later. John later still. But Mark before the destruction of the temple. Maybe 64, 65, something like that. But the Christians are already experiencing persecution. Not, not empire-wide. There's been no empire-wide edict to kill all the Christians, to round them all up. That will come later, toward the end of the third century. But it still is happening in various places at various times, including under Nero. Okay, so now, 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, just nobody can be dogmatic about what that means. Nobody can. Standing where it does not belong. The obvious historical reference is to the attempt by Antiochus Epiphanes IV to put a statue either of himself or of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem in about 167 BC, which set off a rebellion, the Maccabean Revolt. But Jesus does seem to th say that there will be something that comes that is an abomination and will make it clear about what is about to happen. And either I have never read about it or nobody was has been clear, you know, as historians about what that event might have been, say, in 64 or 65 A.D., but regardless, I sort of get it. When you see, quote, the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why would you flee to the mountains? So you're not caught up in this war that's coming. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Just run. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Just run. It's going to be awful. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers because they're especially vulnerable. Right? Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. And I would imagine that those undergoing it, trying to survive this war that breaks out with the Romans, they don't want to hear you tell them, well, you know, sometime long in the past, it was much worse. They don't want to hear. This is the worst any of them could imagine. That's what he's trying to tell the disciples. This is going to be worse than anything you ever imagined. And remember, these are people... <sighs> who saw 2,000 Galileans crucified on the roadsides of Galilee by the Romans in about 6 AD. Wow. These are, these are really dramatic warnings, aren't they? Dramatic warnings, because sometimes that's what it takes with us. 
people. Does it remind you at all? I mean, just a little bit, and you know, the same type of language as when um, the Israelites were getting ready to flee Egypt and and be ready, speed, be on guard. The haste. Yes, don't right? don't go back for anything. Don't, sit down for your dinner. Eat standing up. Keep your sandals on. Got your staff ready. ready. You're ready to, to go. 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 Don't look back. And in, in, in the Exodus, because there was going to be no time, and here there is, you don't want to, you don't want to, what? You don't want to dawdle. Yes. It's going to be so bad, just get out of town. Yeah. I mean, it's dramatic, but Jesus loves the disciples. He doesn't want them to get caught up in what he knows is coming. That's the sadness of it. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's coming, and he doesn't want them caught up in this. He doesn't want any of his fellow Jews to be caught up in this. Why would he? Why would he? It's going to be awful. Just remember, one quarter of all the Roman legions were committed to this war. One quarter. Verse 20, Jesus goes on. If you had a red letter Bible, this would all be in red. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. As if to say, if God doesn't to intervene in some way, there wouldn't be anybody left. But God is a protector of his people, and his people is a way of talking, describing the elect, whom he has chosen. Speaking of a community of people, the community of people, the community that he has chosen. Verse 21, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. Well, that's obvious enough because who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. So if 40 years later people go around, look, here's the Messiah, or look, here's the Messiah, ah, don't believe it. Now here is the not surprising thing. After the Romans put down this revolt, they win this war, they destroy the temple, they kill tens of thousands of Jews. They allow the rest to stay. Judaism is, has to transform itself because the temple was the beating heart of Judaism and they don't have a temple anymore, so Judaism begins to remake itself. And people began to look forward to the day when the Messiah would arrive and the temple would be rebuilt. And in about 135, so that would be 35, about 65 years later, a prominent rabbi, and must be a very charismatic figure, Rabbi Akiba, I think, and the prominent figure I know is Simeon Bar Kokhba, son of the, took the name Bar Kokhba, meaning son of the morning star, Put Simon Bar Kokhba forward as the Messiah. 
long-awaited Messiah, who was going to do what? Now he was going to kick out the Romans and rebuild the temple. And Simon Bar Kokhba went so far as to have coins minted. We have them. I don't, but humanity does. Of year one, year two, year three, with the temple on one side, and I don't know what's on the other. The temple on one side. Because, see, he was ushering in the kingdom of God, year one, year two, year three. There were would be messiahs a hundred years after Jesus, a hundred years before Jesus, and a hundred years after Jesus. And it is, it, these would be messiahs are a natural, they're an understandable response to the increasingly unbearable tension between the promises of God and the lived day-to-day -day reality of the Jews. And so the people became very susceptible to would-be messiahs. From Judas the Galilean in 6 AD all the way forward to Simon Bar Kokhba in 135. And Jesus, <laughs> you know, the crowds embraced him for a little bit, but by and large dropped him like a hotcake, and he was crucified. He didn't even try to meet their expectations. He never picked up a sword and say, you know, down with Rome or something like that. Never. Not once. Not once. And he ends up crucified. But he was resurrected. Hence, we know that he is the Messiah. And there would be nothing but pretenders before, and there would be nothing but pretenders afterward. So Jesus goes on in, in verse 22. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, even you believers, even you people who put your trust in me. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. This is coming. Don't let yourself be surprised. It's coming. It's coming. Now, I would imagine that they would, that the four disciples there would like to have a calendar date. <laughs> Tell us, right? Tell us when exactly so I can really, really be ready. Like, the, um, what do we call them now? Survivalists? And stuff, right? People who put stocks, they, they put away all the canned goods and everything in the closet and stock up, stockpile water and the rest of it. Jesus says, be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. It's coming. It's coming. Don't be fooled by, by false messiahs and false prophets. If we went back in time a thousand years, not quite a thousand, but let's just 800 years before Jesus and there were prophets wandering the land of Israel were those all genuinely God's prophets no they weren't there were just people going around saying things they weren't all prophets of God they weren't speaking for God there's always been false prophets that's why there are tests in the book of Deuteronomy as to what a true prophet is that, that'd only be there if there were a lot of false prophets out there. So, and then Jesus gets positively cosmic. 
Verse 24, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's going to be cosmic. The world orders are going to be shaken and moved. I don't think Rome saw it that way. But who survived the next 500 years? Rome nope. or Christianity? <laughs> what happened to the Caesars? They all went by the wayside. All empires, they all fall. But God's work and God's purposes and God's people press on. So this little passage in 24 and 25, that, that stuff, that's from Isaiah. Could just as easily have come from the book of Joel. About the same. And what's fascinating is when Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost to talk about what is actually happening with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, he calls on language just like this. This apocalyptic um, movie screen images of the significance of what is happening. Verse 26, At that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now that is so easily misread because coming me, if you just look at it, in the English, because this is the traditional translation. Coming is, he's coming from where? At that time. So, call it 70 AD. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Okay. So he is coming from heaven, heaven mm -hmm. to earth. Is that what the Son of Man does? Is that what it actually means? First point, the Greek there, coming, actually could just as easily be translated as going. Such that you're not sure whether he's coming or going. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Coming or going. So we're going to go to look at one thing, and then we'll come back here. Daniel chapter 7. Yep. Daniel chapter 7. This is where Jesus goes to find this title and story of him being the Son of Man. So go to Daniel. Come on, Scott. Here we go. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, say verse 13, maybe. I got to see it. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, so verse 13 of Daniel 7. So let me just set it up a little bit. If you go back up, what would you find? You would find the Ancient of Days in this vision, sitting on his throne, right? And the beasts have been destroyed, and now, Daniel writes, In my vision at night, verse 13, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, 
coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. What? <laughs> and was led into his presence. What? What? The coming is not to earth? No, the coming is to God's throne. It isn't, it, it isn't heaven to earth. It's earth to heaven. That's what the coming is. They're like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the agent of days. He's going up before, you picture any old movie. You got the king and people come before the king, right? They walk up there on the little red carpet. That's it. That's it. It's, see, so much time. You got to pay direction. You got to pay attention to direction. The holy city comes down out of heaven to earth. The direction matters. Because earth is going to be transformed and renewed and made new. And here, the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus, comes before the throne of God, the throne of the Ancient of Days. So when you go back to, oh, back to Mark 13, 13, 26? Yeah. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, coming before God in clouds with great power and glory because Jesus is being vindicated. And he will send the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Right? It will gather them together because they have a mission. They have a mission. To do what? The book of Acts. To be Jesus' witnesses to Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Book of Matthew. At the to go and make disciples of all nations to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to teach people to obey. This work takes messengers. This work takes people ready to roll their sleeves up. And those people who are working for God's purposes are God's elect. From the four corners of the earth, the body of Christ spans the globe. Spans the globe. Let me do one last bit before we sign off today. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. The little signs. We're not going to worry about the botany stuff here. Even so, when you see these things happening, these things that Jesus has been talking about, you know that it's near. It's right at the door. Because, of course, it will be unmistakable when it begins. He says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I think if you read Mark 13, especially to verse 31, 
in the context of what is about to happen, just as it happened after Jeremiah pronounced God's judgment on the temple. Scott, you it, have a It makes a lot more sense. Also, before we close, from Jim Adams, he'd like you to tell him in verse 27, what does it mean he will gather his elect? Hmm. Think of it as a mother hen, who because that, that's a metaphor used in, in the Bible. A mother hen gathering, gathering all those, his elect, all those who are going to do God's work. Why? So that they can do God's work. So that they can be sent forth. It has to mean that. What else could it mean? Because the work is has begun, but when the temple is destroyed, Jesus is vindicated, and the work isn't over. But it's going to proceed apace onward, decade after decade, century after century. Sometimes a couple steps forward and a step back, but it's going to go on. It's going to go forward. Going to gather his elect. All of the believers can think of themselves as being under the wings of Jesus. How about that? I don't know. I think that's about right. So, I'm going to have you close this out today. Okay, I'm going to close this in prayer. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, there are places in the Bible which we have a hard time understanding and reading, and they're easily misused. Um, and we've been in one all day today, Mark 13 and the similar passages in Matthew and Luke. Help us to put them in a, in, uh, in a right and proper context. So then, so, so then when Jesus says, ah, this generation will pass away. We don't have to say Jesus was wrong or jump through hoops to try to make the word generation mean something it doesn't. But simply to see Jesus' care for these people and his love for them and his desire to spare them of as much of what's coming as possible. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, everybody. Adios. See you tomorrow, maybe Sunday, maybe. Uh, have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.